Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 203 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to... We're here today with Stephen Morris, a novelist, academic, essayist, and historian who is a former Eastern Orthodox chaplain at Columbia University. He is the author of When Brothers Dwell in Unity, Byzantine Christianity and Homosexuality, and the author of Supernatural Thrillers. Mr. Morris, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well today. I'm very relieved that my allergies are much better this week than last. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am relieved, too. That will help our listeners um, today. What I'd like to start out with by asking you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? I've been uh, a long-time academic involved in uh, Byzantine church history with the idea of helping the Orthodox Church see what our actual practice has been in the past in regards to LGBT folk and point out possible ways forward, that it's really impossible to to lead someone, uh, to lead people in a new direction, unless you really know where you've been before. And it's too often that the so-called traditionalists like to say, the rules say, or the history was, and they really don't know what the history or the rules were really all about. So somebody needed to point out what the actual practice of the Orthodox Church has been in the past and to suggest a few ways uh, to go forward with that. So before we delve into actual practices of the 12th century church um, or earlier, uh, what exactly led you to becoming so interested in the uh, history of the Byzantine church? And did that precede or follow your uh, actual ascension to the title of father uh, as a priest within the church? Well, from about fourth grade, I was convinced that uh, uh, God exists, and that demanded some that demands some kind of response from us. And my family was not religious at all. Uh, I became an Episcopalian when I was in junior high school, because that was the church nearest to us where I w- was growing up in Seattle. And then when I got to uh, Yale as an undergraduate. I discovered the Orthodox Church and felt so much at home there that I converted to Orthodoxy when I was a sophomore. And having already intended to become a priest, uh, I just naturally followed through with that uh, in the Orthodox Church. But the other uh, thread of that was that I had long suppressed my um, homosexuality. I'd known since the age of six or seven, maybe eight, that that I felt uh, a certain way uh, when I saw pictures of um, hunky princes in the Arabian Nights storybooks. (laughs) And I had no name for that. But as I got older, I realized there was a name for that. And I I turned away and turned away and turned away from that because I was constantly getting messages from uh, religious authorities and from mainstream society in those days that this was wrong, this was bad, this was not something... Uh, appropriate uh, to engage in. And then finally, um, in my mid-30s, the dam broke, and I just couldn't um, deny that any any further. Uh, So I uh, came out. I was forced to resign from active ministry, uh, my uh, chaplaincy at Columbia University, and um, 
discovered uh, independent scholarship as a way to do the same thing but different, to keep thinking and, and writing and, and talking about Byzantine religious practice, but now with a very specific uh, mission to uh, open up the history of orthodoxy and Byzantine Christianity in regards to uh, LGBT folk. It's interesting that you mentioned that while in elementary school, you became aware and in fact convinced of the existence of God around the same time that you became aware of your own homosexuality, which in turn became repressed by that very thing, that, by the church, which is the institution with which uh, you've chosen to associate God throughout your life. Especially it's interesting within light that you came from a more secular family um, where I'm presuming homosexuality wasn't uh, as prohibited um, as it might have been in the church. Do you have any, can you reflect on how they both emerged at the same time, the one almost uh, counteracting the other? Well, I think in my family, um, although that was fairly secular, it was, sex was not something that got talked about at all <laughs> in any mm -hmm. way, shape, or form. So it was always kind of a forbidden uh, subject in, in, as far as that goes. And um, I think the, the, just the realization that the world is so much larger than what we can see and touch uh, opened up so many vistas uh, for me in terms of, of religion. And then, uh, but I, I encountered pe the, how do I want to say, the guideposts, the, mm -hmm. the guides along the, the roads into these new vistas seem to have a consistent message that this is wrong, this is not something that you should do. And so I, rather than try to reinvent the wheel, I trusted them that they knew the way in, in along these uh, religious pathways much more than, you know, much better than I did. And uh, I should trust them. So, Stephen, let's delve into Byzantine history. Um, and for our guests, giving them the benefit of the doubt, could you please define when the Byzantine Empire stood, where its center was um, in Constantinople, and can you please um, elaborate upon the connection between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Byzantine Empire? Uh, yes. The um, Roman Empire, centered in Rome, in Italy, uh, persecuted Christianity. It was illegal to be a Christian until the year 313, when the Emperor Constantine um, made, it, uh, made it possible to be a, a Christian. He didn't make it the state religion, but he, he legalized the practice of Christianity and embraced uh, Christianity himself. He also decided to move the capital of the empire from Rome to the eastern shore of the Mediterranean and found a new city, uh, which he named for himself, Constantinople, uh, which is now known as Istanbul in Turkey. The city of Constantinople was built on top of a much smaller village that had been there first, which was uh, known as uh, Byzantium. So the when Constantine moved the capital of the empire to the uh, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, in his new city of Constantinople, the empire uh, has been given the name uh, Byzantium, Byzantine, based on the name of that little village that he built his new capital on top of. The empire, which was still uh, people in the Eastern Mediterranean still thought of themselves as Roman and still ruled the empire from the shores of Spain to Syria. 
And gradually, though, the, the western part of the empire fell away and it was overrun by barbarian uh, tribes from the, the Huns and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the people coming down from Germany. But the empire survived in the eastern Mediterranean, North Africa, Greece, Asia, um, until 1453 when uh, the Turks uh, came out of the uh, uh, further reaches of the east and conquered Constantinople and made it Istanbul, uh, a, a Muslim city uh, that it still uh, is today. So, so 1,100 years, which began um, with the transition from Rome to modern-day uh, Turkey, and it fell with the uh, invasion of Mehmet the Conqueror, who <clears throat> founded the Ottoman Empire, which would last into the 20th century. So That's really, right. you're talking about an 1,100-year period. Now, how is that related to the Eastern Orthodox Church? Well, the, um, the early Christian theologians in the Latin-speaking West were primarily converted lawyers who thought in very legalistic terms. The, the Greek-speaking early theologians in the East uh, were poets on the whole, they were much more comfortable with uh, mystery and transcendence. So the Greek-speaking Christianity of the Eastern Mediterranean is what Con Constantine uh, fostered and supported in uh, Constantinople, and that Greek-speaking Christianity uh, became what we now call the Orthodox Church, um, or the Byzantine Church, because of its roots in uh, Constantine's empire. So, uh, tension between Logos and Pathos. Yes, very much. And, and, you, the whole, yeah. and in New Haven, Connecticut, when you were 19 years old, you actually transitioned from Logos to Pathos at Yale University, uh, leaving the Episcopalian Church and settling on the more emotional pole of the Byzantine Church. Can you comment on what the appeal was? Yes, I felt much more at home liturgically with the Orthodox uh, liturgical practices. Um, I felt much more at home with the uh, Orthodox approach to the Bible, and not everything is black and white. There's a much greater comfort with gray that not everything has to be one way or the other, that there's a, a, a much more nuanced, a much more layered approach to uh, life and a much more realistic approach to life, that things aren't always so clear, that the rules need to be adjusted for a variety of, of personal situations, and that, um, th that the resurrection, uh, the experience of Christ's resurrection pervades everything, but that it, it, it enlightens situations in very many different ways that, that's hard to create a one-size-fits-all approach. So let's ground our discussion in your personal identity uh, as a member of the LGBT community as we explore why it is you eventually made a decision acknowledging your identity, which forced you to leave um, the uh, co-op and the chaplaincy at Columbia University, which is grounded in this millennia-old Byzantine history. Uh, uh, you've made it known that men and women who committed fornication or adultery were forbidden communion for years. Men who had sex with other men were denied communion for, for fewer than that, only seven to 80 days. Men and um, women who remarried after divorce were forbidden for years. Uh, bankers were forbidden communion and socially shunned, denied church funerals, and, and uh, were not commemorated with prayers for the dead. So can you elaborate on some of the history of the church within the context of many individuals saying, well, you know, 
Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament and, and uh, being gay and homosexual is definitely not something that the church condones. Can you provide greater historical context for what was and wasn't condoned or what the penalties were in the um, Byzantine Empire? Uh, yes, the early uh, Byzantine church uh, had very strict expectations as far as behavior of what was appropriate for people who were baptized. Uh, people who engaged in uh, loaning money for interest were considered among the worst, uh, that you were, uh, rather than helping the poor escape uh, tragedy, you were making their tragedy worse by charging them interest on the money that you lent them. So people that were involved in banking were absolutely forbidden communion. They were barred from funerals. They couldn't be prayed for in the prayers for the dead. They were absolutely shunned. And as far and sexuality also was seen as a very powerful aspect of, of human life and something to be protected and, and guarded. So marriage was seen not as a contract that dissolved with the death of one of the partners, uh, but the marriage was seen as an eternal relationship that survived death, and that uh, anyone who betrayed a deceased partner was committing um, adultery. So anyone who engaged in a, or entered into a second or, or a subsequent marriage following um, the death of a partner, death of a wife or a husband, or even even worse, if that other partner was still alive, and that, you know if, if somebody remarried after divorce, that was seen as a as an absolute betrayal of their first relationship, and so they were absolutely forbidden communion for many many years um, as well. Whereas sex between men was looked on as well, that's something that happens, <laughs> and it was discouraged with a slap on the wrist. But that there was always a sense that heterosexual betrayal of um, marriage was a much more serious uh, offense. Uh, financial betrayal of the poor uh, was a much more serious offense. And hmm. nowadays people think that, oh, you know, that people can get married over and over again. It's, it's not a problem. But, you know, oh, God forbid that two men should be uh, in a sexual relationship together. But in the past, it was really very much the opposite. Um, men, grown men, were almost expected to be powerless in the presence of a beautiful boy, an adolescent who was still uh, fuzzy-cheeked, whose beard had not completely come in. And so there are a lot of rules about keeping those beautiful boys, adolescents, uh, without beards, out of monasteries because the grown monks were expected to be – you couldn't expect a grown man to control himself in the presence of one of these uh, beautiful adolescents. But for grown men to be uh, sleeping together, yeah, that happens. Um, so uh, there grew up a, uh, a service. Uh, eventually to sanctify a second or a third marriage about the year 1000 that uh, the church acknowledged that you know despite all her protests people did get married more than once and that while the second or third marriage could still be forbidden this is wrong but here's a service to bless it because we know it happens and they also developed a service to bless a relationship between two men uh, called brother making and that relationship was originally evidently a, a, a partnership between two monks who joined together for mutual support of prayer and Bible study and did not have a sexual aspect to it, but that it very quickly uh, spread to being used um, in secular society. 
And when two secular men were joined as brothers in this service, very often the relationship did have a sexual component. And we know, in fact, that one bishop in the 1200s complained that it was that the service was used as a kind of gay marriage, although he didn't have that vocabulary uh, at that point. Um, uh, he it was it was used as a as a form of gay marriage in the 1200s, and only he objected. Virtually no one else seemed to care. And whenever the early uh, Greek preachers uh, touched on Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, they warned people against um, inhospitality, that the, the primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah were, was inhospitality to the visitors that Lot was entertaining. This is very much the same thing that other passages in the Old Testament say, like in the prophet Ezekiel, Sodom and Gomorrah are uh, rebuked for being so inhospitable and so greedy and so cruel to the um, visitors that Lot was entertaining. And also the visitors were thought to be um, beautiful boys, you know, adolescents. And so, of course, the grown men in Sodom and Gomorrah were attracted to them. How could they not be? Um, the only person who really preached against what we would now call homosexuality was John Chrysostom in the 4th century. And he sticks out, his sermons stick out like a sore thumb because they are the only ones, the only sermons that object to uh, men having uh, a sexual relationship together. And I think if you look very carefully at his writings, you see that he was, in fact, probably abused as a, as a student, and most of what he says is therefore colored by his um, the, uh, the abusive relationship he suffered with his tutors. Now, Stephen, you've been able to delve quite deeply, well, for our listening audiences quite deeply, I'm sure for you that's just a, a uh, quick shallow synopsis of millennia of history within the church and within uh, Western civilization. Many of our listeners may be listening, well, this is wonderful. I sat through history class in high school, and, and uh, it's great to know about this. But why is this relevant to us today? Why is Stephen so interested in the his history of early Byzantine Christianity and its evolution and, and thoughts of various different transgressions against the church? How is this history relevant in shaping um, the way the church conducts, it, conducts itself today and the way homosexuality is viewed today, and why is it relevant to your life and the lives of our listeners? Well, I think uh, it's relevant now because of the ascendance of the so-called religious right, uh, which is prevalent not just in the United States, but some circles in the Vatican and some uh, in some circles in Russian and uh, Eastern European uh, society, that there are certainly people who call themselves traditionalists um, some members of the, uh, the Supreme Court, in fact, who say never has society legislated or permitted uh, marriage between two men or two women, that this is something that's uh, totally outside the pales of, of what's acceptable behavior. And, in fact, if we look at our history, we know that it is not outside uh, the parameters of, of acceptable behavior, and that so often, uh, especially in religious circles, you can't, nothing uh, new can be introduced without demonstrating how it grows out of uh, previous practice. Uh, religious people um, tend to be um, conservative because maybe has some the wrong uh, connotations, but they t they value history, they value past uh, experience, they value precedent. 
So you, you, you have to demonstrate how a new, what seems to be a new practice is actually rooted in previous experience. And so for the so-called traditionalists in the Vatican, in the Russian Orthodox Church, in Moscow, in parts of Eastern European society, or on the Supreme Court uh, here in the United States, they need to see that homosexuality was much more, not just uh, tolerated, but accepted in medieval society, in, in medieval Christian society, in medieval uh, religious practice. And so, uh, you know, in order to be comfortable with it today, we have to see how people were comfortable with it uh, in the past. And, well, so that has been the context. It's a, it seems as though it's almost the uh, 16th century uh, Protestant Reformation that really creates a departure from historic church tradition um, with all the tumult in Europe that leads to potentially uh, greater animosity towards homosexual practices. Is that is that a fair assessment, or is that off base? I think that's certainly a, a very large uh, contributing factor. When you cut off, uh, when, uh, your, your, when you cut yourself off from the ongoing lived experience of Christian community, and say we have to go back to the text, and you abandon all the traditional tools that you've had to interpret that text, or to see how that text has been interpreted in the past, you you lose uh, the, the depth and the richness. Uh, that comes with, uh, you know, reading between the lines. And so it sounds like something that's, that you're offering to our listeners is a, is a sense of the importance of historical context to modern discussions, a sense that we're part of a historical fabric of civilization where the problems we're encountering today are by no means the first time societies have to deal with these issues. And in fact, there's a rich and vibrant history of these issues having been addressed in previous legal systems and previous societies and previous social mores. Is that a message you're trying to convey today? That's exactly it. That's our current, we're not reinventing the wheel here. People have dealt with these issues time and time again. And especially for religious people, these issues are not something to be afraid of. They're not something to, to bury. They're not something to say, oh, that's absolutely forbidden and we can't even discuss it, which is how the religious right so often approaches these things. So as we approach the end of this podcast, Stephen, a final question for you, or, or two-part question, which is I'd like to ask you to reflect upon your years serving the church, your years as a novelist, as an academic, an essay, essayist, and a historian, uh, within the context of public service, making the world a better place for others, could you please address why it is you've been motivated to engage in these activities in order to advance the public interest and improve the state of the world for others, and what you hope your legacy will be, what the results of those actions you hope at the end of your career will attain? Well, I had to deny, for for decades, I had to deny a very important aspect of my own life, my own existence, and then I had to give up, when I faced the, that aspect of myself, I had to give up the thing that probably meant the most to me, um, my, my pastoral ministry. And I want to spare other people that same heartache. I want to, I also want to um, help save people's lives. I know that in many parts of Eastern Europe, um, LGBT people are, are subject to lynching. They're subject to, to horrendous mistreatment, uh, even in, you know abduction, uh, torture, and, and, and murder. And if I can if I can help one young man or, or, or young woman um, be true to themselves and escape 
that kind of horrendous uh, reaction from society, I think that my, my work will have been a success. And that has been Stephen Morris, a novelist, academic, essayist, and historian, a former Eastern Orthodox chaplain at Columbia University, author of Byzantine history and of numerous supernatural thrillers, who speaks uh, about the historical origins of uh, ecumenical uh, doctrine with regards to sexual identity and uh, deviances within society from banking to uh, post-mortal adultery. Uh, Stephen presents a nuanced view of history in order to influence the current political discussion, especially by the religious right, so-called traditionalists, who seek to ground their anti-marriage equality, anti-homosexual uh, agenda by grounding their arguments in what Stephen refers to or implicates as a fictional history of uh, historical antagonism towards homosexuality un, uh, and, and that, that characterizes the current rise of marriage equality and acceptance of LGBTs uh, community and society as unprecedented, which Stephen demonstrates clearly has not been the case, especially within the Byzantine Empire. So in a sense, Stephen seeks to advance the public interest by creating a more nuanced view of what church history uh, and attitudes towards homosexuality have truly been, and uh, he hopes that uh, his work uh, will advance the public interest by allowing even one person to escape discrimination and antagonism directed towards him for merely embracing the identity with which he was born. Stephen, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so very much, Jordan. I really appreciate this opportunity. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review of this podcast on iTunes, and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.